That is creature o'clock. So ring that buzzer. It sounds like a lion roar. Roar! And open the door to join us for the 31st annual meeting of the Animal Fan Club. I'm Placental Mammal Mike. And I'm a quick-footed turtle, Meredith. We meet every week at our clubhouse we like to call the Dalmatian Station. (coughs) To talk about our favorite animals. What we lack in expertise, we make up for in unbridled enthusiasm and childlike wonder. Wow. So saddle up that miniature horse and hold on tight for the furriest, fin-filled, and feathered podcast in all of the kingdom of Animalia. What's up, Mike? Hey, Meredith. Not a whole lot. How are you doing? Oh, you know, it's the same as it's been for like the past two months. But I don't even want to talk about that. I want to talk about that link you sent me last night about worm names, which I, it like touched me to my deepest soul. And I'm thankful that you sent that to me. Brought a great ray of light into my life last night. It was a forum that I found where they were having discourse about naming worms. Right. Because sometimes you find yourself Googling, what are some good names for worms? Naturally. That's just the life that I'm living right now. The forum had a lot of really interesting suggestions for fun and clever worm names, but they were asking a lot of questions about, is it a boy worm or a girl worm? And people were commenting that worms have no concept of gender in the way that us humans do. Of course. Because they're hermaphroditic. So then it went in a list of gender neutral worm names. And it was just a lot of earnestness regarding pronouns towards worms. I feel like I'm putting such a fine point on this, but it was a fine point. In my evening last night, I was just, it made me take a moment and just really appreciate that people are still, despite all the darkness in the world, having just the most sweet, innocent, good natured, whimsical conversations out there somewhere. It just makes me so happy. And it also reminded me of this other thing, another forum on Facebook, actually, that my friend Kristen mentioned to me like a month ago, and I still haven't brought it up. It's this Facebook group. And I wrote down the name of it because it's just, it says it all. A group where we all pretend to be ants in an ant colony. Have you heard of this? Yes, I've been invited to the group, I believe. But tell me more. You know, I haven't joined the group. I haven't participated in the group. Maybe this will sell you on it. For instance, what goes down in this group is that somebody posted like the picture of a giant anteater or Pulosa friends. Um, It was a picture of a giant anteater and like right next to her snout was like a big old ant. The question was, this dude trying to eat the queen, what do you do? And then everyone responds and like, what looks like what has been decided is the like mode of communication, like ant communications, which means that everything is like in capital letters and they're all, all the letters are like spaced out by an extra space. So it was like protect was one answer. Like, what are you going to do for your queen? Protect. Another one said die for queen. But it's all in this like spaced out all caps font. Yeah, ant language. The effect is hilarious because they're all doing it, like, down the line. All the posts have it. 
and it'll just be these like one word answers. Protech. I'm in a similar Facebook group called Crustacean Memes for Crabby Friends. Okay. Tell me more. And the way of speaking as crabs is to embrace the pile. So whenever you see the crabs in the pile, you can type pile underneath it. And that shows that you're joining the crustacean pile. So there's heaps. There's heaps and heaps of of y'all. There's heaps. But back to the forum, Meredith, I investigated further and the forum was for a video game company that makes two different video games. The one you're designing like the perfect satellite or droid or something. Mm -hmm. But the other one is called Niche and it's a (laughs) genetics game. Oh. So it's a turn-based strategy game. So you get creatures and then you mate them together and you can kind of help choose which gene they get, like what their journey is going to be Uh in terms of like traits, like color of fur or healing abilities or whatever. Yeah. And I found this YouTube playthrough, like video game tutorial kind of thing where they're pretty much just playing the game. Uh Uh-huh. And I have to send it to you because I thought of you immediately. And I think it's a game that you should consider playing because I'm embracing computer games. Like I've been saying, I've been playing a lot of Civilization. Yes. And this is kind of like that, but for creatures living in the forest. Oh, my gosh. I'm afraid. uh, I have a thing against games. I have to do some soul searching about it. I say, great, but I probably won't play it. I'm just, I'm not a games person. I'm just not. That's fair. You can watch the YouTube videos. I think you'll get enjoyment out of that. I'll definitely do that. I I don't play games, but I watch a lot of YouTube videos. Fierce. We found a solution. So I've been watching The Expanse, which is a sci-fi series on Amazon. Uh-huh. And it's set a few hundred years in the future. And no spoilers, but there's this one large ship that is designed to be kind of like a generation ship to travel hundreds of years, you know? Mm-hmm. And so they have quite a lot of services in the ship, including this livestock area (laughs) that they end up using as like a prison. So there's no images of livestock, but there's definitely livestock pens on this ship. Okay. And so that got me thinking about intergalactic goats (sighs) and space sheep and how if you have a cow in that ship and the cow passes a moon, how the cow is sort of jumping over the moon and sort of a meta manner. Yes. And it filled me with some animal-based delight. Oh, man. I stand by this statement that I made early on that animal content, it like really writes itself. Affirmative. The amount of possibilities and the the, built-in humor of it all is just enough to sustain itself indefinitely. And I think that's why we're here. Well stated, Meredith. Thank you. Well, do you want to talk about some animals? I do. I do. I would love to jump in. Okay. I will mention very quickly, Meredith, that I thought of you the other day when I was walking under a bridge and it was a dangerous, scary pigeon poop moment. Oh, no. Pigeon poop everywhere. Yeah, yeah. And they were kind of lining either side of the sidewalk. But I just channeled your pigeon positivity energy and I walked through without getting pooped on. So I just want to thank you for that. Oh, no. Thank you for that. Pigeon positivity energy, that PPE, that's another form of protection. That was very current, Meredith. Prescient. Well, on that note. Yeah, let's kick it off with the old taxonomy cheer. I love it. Let's go. Ready? Okay. Taxonomy you. Taxonomy we. 
Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Anna Amelia. It's our name. Don't wear it out. Phylum. Cordata. You can't whine when you've got a spine. Class. Reptilia. Yo, you want to herp, bro? Order. Squamata. Scaly reptiles. Family. Corytophonidae. Iguanian lizards with helmets. Genus. Basiliscus. Walk on the water. Species. Basiliscus. Basiliscus. It's the common basilisk, a.k.a. the Jesus lizard. Oh, Meredith, this is exciting. This is that lizard that kind of runs across the water, the top of the water, right? With the kind of crazy cycly legs, yeah? Yes, exactly. Perfect description. And that's such a great way to get into it. Also, I have to mention that, do you remember that song by Toad and the Wet Sprocket from like the 90s? Like, walk on the water. Yeah, Toad in the Wet Sprocket was kind of part of the agreed upon music in the music department car when we were on tour, which is to say that the our piano player found it acceptable. He was kind of the one to agree or disagree with the music selection. Yeah. We listened to a lot of Toad in the Wet Sprocket our last year or two on tour for sure. That is so random because we were listening to them last night or a couple nights ago when we were making dinner. I was literally thinking, I'm like, who is who who are their listeners? You know, who tunes in purposely to Toad the Wet Sprocket? No shade at all. I just was like, I've never listened to them. I don't know their oeuvre or anything. So I was just like, what's up with Toad the Wet Sprocket fans? Well, it was kind of that era of music in the 90s when everybody still played instruments yeah. and wrote yeah. songs. Totally. Before the kind of digital revolution took over, I guess. Yeah. I mean, we listened to them and like a lot of Indigo Girls, you know, a lot of that kind of like festival rock. 90s festival rock. Such a thing. And I can't say I hate it. I would love to be at a 90s festival right now. Same. But anyway, (laughs) we digress, don't we? (laughs) Yeah, we've got the Jesus lizard. And yeah, so they're the ones that essentially run across, across the water, which we will talk about. Very quick tax facts. We're familiar pretty much all the way up through Squamata. We've talked about all of this before. Yes. So the family Corytophonidae, referring to Iguanian lizards with helmets. So the helmets in this case refer to um, these crests on the back of their heads. I think if you think about like iguanas, which are in the same family, but not in the same genus. So we lose the iguana-ness after family. But anyway, Mm. like you can kind of think about those crests that you see on iguana heads or little spikes sometimes. Sure. If you can picture that. It's like that. It's like that on these guys, but it's like a solid piece of mohawk flap. If that makes sense. Just look up a picture. I love mohawk flaps. But these guys actually have them on their head and then all the way down their back. Whereas some of the other Jesus lizard species just have them on their head, for instance. It's kind of like a fin. A fin, yeah. Like or a sail, as you'd see on the back of a fish. Exactly. That's a very great way to think about it. Yeah, a fin. It's, def- it's like a lizard fin. And so by the time we get to genus Basiliscus, Basiliscus, at first I thought it was like Basilicus, like a basilica. I was like, because it's a Jesus lizard? That didn't check out. Okay, good. Basiliscus. Basiliscus is referring to the Jesus lizards, of which there are four species, okay? So we're just talking about the common basilisk. Okay. And so 
interestingly, let me turn my page here. For you, all you connoisseurs and experts in Greek mythology, the basilisk, I believe, was kind of one of those like hybrid creatures kind of like a griffin or something like that, but it was a combination of a rooster, a snake, and a lion is what the basil basilisk. I'm going to have a hard time with this word today. I apologize. Rooster, snake, lion. Yeah, rooster, snake, lion. That's fucking random. Isn't it? It's so true. It's like they wrote a bunch of animal names on sheets of paper and pulled them out of a hat. Exactly. So basilisk means little king, And so this weird hybrid creature, it could kill by death by breath or by glance. Ooh. So it could look at you funny and it could kill you. Or it could just breathe on you and it could kill you. And its only foe is the weasel. My only foe is the weasel. (laughs) True. Again, this stuff writes itself. So that's where that name comes from, oddly. So we've got this Jesus lizard named after a weird hybrid rooster snake lion creature. Okay. Yeah, it all adds up. Sets the scene. Perfect. I'm on board. These guys, as far as appearance goes, they've got that crest on their head, crest on the back. Like I mentioned, they're kind of brown and creamy in color, which allows them to achieve really good camouflage in the tropical rainforests where they live. Mm. So they live in the tropical rainforests of um, Central America mostly and into Northwestern South America, where our common basilisk hangs out. Mm. In terms of what they look like, 70 like 70 to 75% of them is tail. <laughs> I just like that ratio. Yeah. 25% body, 75% tail. And they can be up to 2.5 feet long. They're definitely on the larger lizard size or medium demi big liz. Omnivores, they like insects, flowers, small vertebrates. Let's talk about their most famous attribute, their ability to, like our, our Lord, walk on the water. I was wondering why they did this, and it's as simple as they're escaping a predator. So they've got a lot of predators because they're kind of little, and I'm sure they're meaty. A lot of meat in the tail. They can be snatched up by birds, other larger lizards, and reptiles. They can be eaten by other mammals. So as a means of escape, they just scurry out across the water, like really fast. So it's not like their tails detach or anything like that. No, they're a lizard. Unlike Skinky Days, their tails do not come off. They just evolved this way of walking across the water, just running away from their predators. Yeah. That's interesting. Like right across the water, which would then um, explain kind of why they hug riverbanks and banks of water. That's where they like to hang out in the leaves down there. Uh Uh-huh. They can just get out of dodge when they need to by running straight across the water up to 15 miles per hour. That's pretty fast. It's pretty fast for sure. Six is really hoofing it for me. I don't know how people go faster than that, but they certainly do. Six miles an hour? I mean, I can kind of do that pace these days. For an hour. You can do like a 10 minute mile. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I never got up to that point on like an elliptical. Mm -hmm. I feel like maybe if I actually ran, ran, I could do that, you know, in IRL, if you will. Right, right. But anyway, these guys, 15 miles per hour across water. But they can really only do it up from 10 to 20 meters, after which point they do sink. But they're able to swim really well, too. They're great swimmers and great climbers. And 15 to 20 meters is still pretty far. Yeah. That's a first down in football. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I have no idea. I at least know the, like, down structure. You got to go 10 yards, which is like 10 meters. Okay. 
Oh, wow. That is far. It's pretty far. It's 30 feet. Well, yeah, it's a meter is a little bit more than three feet. Right on, Jesus Lizards. That's really amazing. I had not actually conceptualized how far that was. I just wrote it down. It's far. You go. You go, guys. So let's talk about how this can actually happen. They kind of broke it down into two steps. So the first step is the slap. Okay. Tax slap. Tax slap. Earlier, you you described it as like bicycling feet almost. Like their hind legs are really long and they kind of move like a bicycle. Uh Uh-huh. They slap their feet into water, but on their third, fourth, and fifth toes, they've got these little fringes that will come out when they hit the water. And so this creates more surface area. And then also in the slap, there's air pockets that are created as well. Kind of like our mantis shrimp that created such a huge air pocket. It was like a vacuum and the heat of the sun. (laughs) Not quite so extreme here, but it's the same principle that when they slap their feet into the water, it creates these air pockets. They're essentially able to then use their feet, their webbed feet with this surface area and air pockets to push the water back, which propels them forward which is the stroke portion of it. And then they lift their feet back up and do the slap again. Slap and stroke, slap and stroke, slap and stroke. Slap stroke, slap stroke, slap stroke. Yeah. And then they can do that for up to 20 meters. Wow. That's a lot of slapping and a lot of stroking. Indeed. When they can't run across the water anymore and they sink, they just start swimming. But at that point, by running that far, they're probably away from that predator. Okay. So it's slap, stroke, slap, stroke, slap, stroke, slap, stroke, sink, swim. Exactly. You called it. I was almost going to talk about that. What's interesting is there's some black and white footage online. I saw it come up a few times in my research um, where it's kind of uh, you're seeing this whole process from the side. So you kind of see the surface of the water and then the Jesus lizard in it. And you're looking at him from the side moving forward. And you can see that actually, like, unlike our Lord, he doesn't really walk across the water or on top of it. You do see his feet go under the water and essentially push it back. But they still are able to bipedally remain upright for a certain amount of time and do that. They're not, like, actually walking on top of the water. Crazy. It is crazy. I kept this one pretty right and tight today. That's about all I've got on the Jesus lizard. Definitely watch a video of them. They're super silly. They kind of look like they would be going like, as they're running because their like arms are up in the air and it just looks like this frantic mess of a lizard running across the water looking so, um, I don't know. Holy? Holy, but also, gosh, I cannot find the word. I think frantic, but a little unhinged maybe. Holy and unhinged. Ah, like a sort of uh, fanatic moment. Yeah. Okay. Or wouldn't it be funny to think that they're actually running towards something instead of away from something? (laughs) What are they running towards? Like, what if we put that narrative on the funny image of them running, going like, Like if they're just like, pancakes! Yeah. Like, what's on the other side of the pond that they want so bad and they're so excited for? Affirmation? Perhaps. Love. A gentle career. A delicious fly, perhaps. Mm. Questions for angels. For sure. Okay, so let's just recap real quick. They're squamates, so they're related to our lizard friends and our skinkaday friends and our snake friends. Sure are. Because those are all squamates. True lizards, meaning they have scales. Yep. They're in Central America and Northwestern South America. You got it. This seemed to evolve because they were escaping predators. That seems to be the genesis of this ability. Right. Or running 
towards something really excitedly. What would be a good name for one of these Jesus lizards? Judas? Mary Magdalene? I like Pontius Pilate. Herod? I can't think Herod anymore without thinking about Alice Cooper. I think in terms of the live musicals, I found that one to be very successful. Hands down. Oh, we watched it again this year when they re-aired it. It's so good. Yeah. They did a great, great job with that. If they're going to ever go for that enterprise again, which it traditionally has not worked very well, that should be the model of how to do it. I agree. I think those overproduced, super tight, look at our camera, our cool camera moves that we do in the movies. Mm -hmm. I think that's interesting, but I think that what makes music theater so fun and exciting is lost in those moments. Of course. Because it's just so produced and I don't know. The live audience factor was really good and it was a good live audience. It wasn't like when they did some of the other ones and you could hear the audience screaming during a quiet scene because the audience wasn't really properly wrangled. Neither was all of the talent. Not like I have very strong feelings about very particular instances of this that I'm going to keep nice and vague. There we go. So that if there's an industry when all of this is over, I might continue to work in it. That's very smart of you. So hallelujah, that's the Jesus lizard. Amen. All right. Yet again, the shrews and their political allies have launched false attacks against hardworking moles and desmonds across Europe. They've tried to classify us, the proud, the honest Tolipidae family as Sorocomorpha, and even worse, Insectivora. They want to hide the truth, but here are the facts. The shrew's ties to lying Linnaeus go back centuries. Rather than acknowledge our sovereignty as distinct moles and desmonds, the shrews would rather our identities be erased and subsumed into their ranks of cheats, adulterers, and liars. Leaving us as a family unprepared and unprotected against political predators. The time to act is now. Let's get out of bed with Carl Linnaeus and look to a brighter future with Team Tilapidae. Paid for by the True Dawn Society of Democratic Desmonds for a Sovereign Future. Welcome to Sturdy Pet Names. We haven't been here in a while. Yeah, this is kind of a fun place. This is where we just talk about names for pets that we think are sturdy and appropriate for the pet, like fantasy baseball, but with pet naming. Sure. I actually have a real example, and I can't believe I haven't talked about her before. Yeah, there was a cat in my life back when I was in like undergrad or a little after undergrad, I should say, in Nashville. So I was dating this guy at the time. He was a percussionist and like one of the other percussionists named Joe had this cat that he had to get rid of because she had, I guess, like or was suspected to have feline AIDS. Ooh. So she couldn't be around his other cats. So my boyfriend at the time took her in and I kind of ended up naming her, but she was super Debbie Downer cat when she first arrived, understandably. She was like in a new place. She was kind of a scaredy cat. So she just wasn't very cool for a long time. And so I just gave her the what to me at the time seemed like the most like uncool name, which was Carol Joe. I don't really want to like talk bad about like certain types of women, but she was definitely like a certain type of woman in my mind. Can you elucidate? I'm trying to think like she was just like a disgruntled postal 
worker in. She went home and ate a lot of like lean cuisines at night, single. No shade on that life. The thing is, Carol Jo ended up being like such a brilliant, lovely presence in my life and just like the sweetest cat. She drooled a lot. Yeah, but she was just great. She was a real sweetie. Yeah, Carol Jo's a sturdy cat name for sure. Yeah, and a sturdy woman name, I will say. Yeah. Dirty pet name! What about you, Mike? Well, I'm still kind of in a fantasy creature realm. Like the basilisk? I think that for like gerbils or hamsters, you know, sort of like small cage rodents or rodents that one would keep in a cage in their home, perhaps with a habitrail situation. Yeah, yeah. I think Gustav is a good name. Gustav. That is a good name. How cute. Yeah, I think that the gerbil and like the hamster and those rodents, I think they kind of have a strong like Germanic, like Austrian vibe. I like that. I just think of the Gustafs that I admire, like the Holsts and the Maulers. Yeah. And I just imagine this cute little gerbily Gustav just kind of fastidiously working in his little mulch den on his next great symphony, which is just full of portent and angst and that sort of romantic era German experience. Sturm und Drang. Yeah, Sturm und Drang. (laughs) So I just think that Gustav is a great name for a gerbil. Like, I just imagine little Gustav with these tiny little reading glasses on, just sitting there with a pen and paper, just getting down to business. Those cute little gerbil hands. Totally. But it'd be like a little pince nez in keeping with the, like, romantic era fashion. Maybe a cute little vest. Definitely a little vest. Oh, man. And maybe, like, a fun mustache of some sort. Oh, this is so cute. Yeah. So that's my sturdy pet name. I love that. I really love that. Texana you. Texana we. Texana who? Texana me. Kingdom. Animalia. Animals, animals, rah, rah, rah. Philo. Mollusca. I'm back on my mollusk journey. Class. Polyplecophora. It's chitin time. Order. Chitani duh. That's the order. Family. Acanthochitanidae. They're a spiny variety. Genus. Cryptoconcus. Just like Bitcoin. Species. Perosis. The butterfly chitin. Flap your way into my heart, you beautiful, beautiful mollusk. Wait, is this something I eat at a soul food restaurant? You're thinking of chitlins, which is different. Got it. So we're back on the mollusk journey. I know it's thrilling. We'll do a quick little mollusk recap. So far, we've talked about gastropods, which are snails. Mm-hmm. Bivalves, which are mussels, clams, oysters, cockles, etc. Yeah. They have two shells. The shells are the valves, hence the name bivalves. They have two valves. Got it. We've also talked scaphopoda, which are the tusk shells. Tusk. They have a boat-shaped foot, which is where the name scaphopod, scaph, like skiff. Yeah. Pod, foot. Yeah. So now we're talking a different class, the chitons. (laughs) Polyplacophora is the name of this class. It's a Greek-derived name. It comes from the words poly, meaning many, placo, meaning tablet, and forus, meaning bearing. So these are many plate-bearing mollusks. Oh, okay. In fact, they have eight shell plates or valves. So they have eight valves. That just made me think of 
our armadillo pals. You know, they look a little bit like armadillos, actually. That's so cool. Yeah, there's about 940 extant species and 430 fossil species recognized. We're going to kind of focus on the class because in terms of the order family and genus and species divisions, Mm -hmm. there's a line of inquiry there for everyone. Chitons were first described by our frenemy, Carl Linnaeus, in 1758. And there have been extensive taxonomic studies of different species, but it's been kind of disputed taxonomically. And the most recent classification in 2006 was based on shell morphology, which has kind of been the usual way of classifying them, like how their shells are formed, morphology, like what it is physically. Yeah, yeah. But it's also considering other characteristics and further resolution within the Chitonidae has been recovered through molecular analysis, which I think is a really interesting way of saying it, resolution. And that's kind of what we've been talking about with some of these species and some of this taxonomic stuff is that it's like kind of blurry, but then we find out a little bit more about it and they kind of create these systems within the classification structure. Right. Infra order and subfamily and stuff like that. That's kind of like extra, you know, auxiliary ranks, if you will, Mm -hmm. are part of this process. So what do chitons look like? They kind of almost look like a turtle shell, but with no arms or legs. It's this just kind of carapace moment. So they have a front valve that's called their head plate, and then they have a posterior anal plate, and then there's six intermediate plates in between. And so these plates are designed so that the chitin can curl up into a ball like an armadillo. Or like a pill bug. Yeah, similar. To protect themselves, or it can flex and like create a sort of U shape so that it can navigate uneven terrain. Oh, like a Land Rover? Exactly like a Land Rover. And then these plates, the valves, which grow out of the mantle of the mollusk, like our bivalve friends. Yeah, yeah. Our tusk friends, the shell grows out of the mantle of the mollusk. Mm -hmm. They also have a girdle, the chitons do, which is the muscular skirt that encircles the plates. I was just doing exercises for my shoulder girdle last night. And I laughed when they said it. I'm like, this is for your shoulder girdle. Yeah, that's something that I've heard talked about in dance classes a lot recently. And I didn't necessarily hear it before. You know, there's different schools of thought and different ways that people kind of learn to talk about their body. Yeah. And I heard shoulder girdle really for like kind of the first time a couple of years ago. And I've just been giggling about it ever since. Yeah, I can't even say why. Maybe just because girdle itself is such a funny concept. It's been remarketed these days via like Spanx sure. or shapewear, but it's a girdle. You'll be thrilled to hear that the chitons have pretty exciting girdles. You mean shapewear. I do. But their girdles are frequently ornamented, which is fun. They really come in a wide variety of different colors and different vibes and different shapes and textures and everything. They never go on sale at Kohl's. So there's the valves and the girdles, and those are up top, kind of like the carapace of the turtle, right? Mm -hmm. But you can't see any legs or anything. Right, right. If you take the chitin and you flip it over, you'll see that it has a, well, I don't know. I mean, there's really no way to say this. It kind of is a Georgia O'Keeffe moment. Understood. And so there's the head 
So if you kind of imagine that like at the top, okay, uh-huh. there's the head. And then at the bottom is, you know, like that's where the anal plate is. That's where the anus is. Mm-hmm. So the head is kind of the intake, the inhalant, and then the exhalant in the anus. Okay. Okay. In the middle is the largest part of this mollusk, which is its muscular foot. That's how it gets around. Okay. And then all of the internal organs and everything are kind of between the foot and the carapace, if you will. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I hear you. I should say that I never encountered the word carapace in my research of the chitin. I'm using it to draw an analogy to turtles just for a reference, although the two have entirely different concepts of shells and valves and all that kind of stuff. Right. This is a shape. Yeah, I was going to ask early on, but then I guess the more you talked about the various valves making up what is like the turtle shell, I just assumed they'd be different things. But thank you for clarifying. You're welcome. Well, there's like a narrow channel on either side of the chitin between the body and the girdle. And so water will enter through the openings on either side of the mouth and flow along the channel Okay. to the exhalant opening close to the anus. And there's gills that hang down kind of towards the end of that. And that's where they get all their air processing. Got it. I'm sorry. I just, I'm having like women's fashion visions here because I think a mantle can also be like a stole, if I remember correctly, like something that can cover the arms. So we've got the mantle, like the stole for the top. Then we've got the girdle holding everything in in the middle. And then, but we've got these like air columns along the side that kind of give this like hourglass shape. And then we move down into these like fluttery gills that form the skirt right over the anus. Sure. Yeah. And actually, you know, the chitin is a type of sewn clothing worn by ancient Greeks from about 750 to 30 BC. Look at that. Yeah. And it's generally made from a single rectangle of woolen or linen fabric. And it's kind of like draped over the shoulder and cinched at the belt or at the chest. Okay. That's like a low or a high girdle moment, (laughs) if you will. Low girdle. There's ionic and Doric chitons. Oh, like as far as like the different styles? Fashions, yes. We'll save that for another time. Our mollusk chitin friends, they're generally herbivorous grazers. Some are omnivorous, some are carnivorous. They live in like tidal zones, kind of semi-aquatic moments. They'll eat algae, bryozoans, diatoms, barnacles, bacteria. They have a very well-developed radula, which is kind of like a tongue. Do you remember the tusk shells had a radula? Yeah. Radulae, maybe. There's a few predatory species of chitons. And they'll lift up their girdle off the surface and then prey will crawl underneath seeking shelter. And then they'll clamp down their girdle and that's how they catch their prey. Oh, little vixens. It's like a deadly like horror style Marilyn Monroe. And she like lifts up her skirt and attracts people underneath it and then slaps it down and eats them. That's exactly what it is. Meredith, (laughs) it's your favorite time. Chitin romance. Bring it on. They have separate sexes and fertilization is typically external. Males will release sperm into the water and females will release eggs either individually or in a long string. 
Fertilization typically takes place in the surrounding water or perhaps in the mantle cavity of the female in some species. Okay. There's a few species that do brood the egg within the mantle cavity. And there's one species where the eggs are retained in the ovary and live young are born. So there's ovoviviparity. Interesting. Ovoviviparity is when the eggs stay inside of the mother and hatch inside of the mother and then they're born. Right. It's different than just standard viviparity in that there's no placental connection between the embryo and the mother. So humans are viviparous. Some chitons are ovoviviparous. Okay. Does that make sense? I think so. So ovoviviparity means that the eggs stay inside the mom and then they hatch inside of the mom. Okay. The little baby's getting sustenance from the egg yolk. Right. Whereas viviparity is when the embryo has a placental connection to the mother and receives nourishment that way. Got it. Okay. Okay. Yeah. That was very helpful. The chitin eggs are pretty tough. They got a spiny coat. Let's address most chitons. They will hatch to a free-swimming trochophore larva, which is typical of mollusks. Mm -hmm. And if you remember, in other, other mollusks, there would be the trochophore and then the intermediate veliger stage and then the final adult form. Well, chitons will skip that intermediate veliger stage (laughs) and will instead form a segmented shell gland on one side of the larva, and then the foot forms on the other side. Oh, okay. Gotcha. They're teenagers. Yeah. Kind of, that's their puberty. Yeah. Chitons have homing abilities that we don't fully understand yet. I love those moments. Yeah, they may remember topographical profiles of their region, or they may leave chemical clues along the rock surface. They might even detect older chemical trails to help orient themselves. That's so cool. It's pretty crazy. And they're used in food around the world, in the Caribbean, the Philippines, Native Americans on the Pacific coasts of North America, Galapagos, South Korea. So these are pretty cosmopolitan. They're kind of all over the place. Not the species, but yes, the class. Gotcha. Is really what we're still talking about. Chitons. We haven't even really homed in on the species yet. Gotcha. Mostly because there's not tons to say about the individual species. Often the case on here. Yeah. So they're they're pretty cosmopolitan. And you can cook them in a variety of ways. You can boil them a little bit. You can have them raw. You can fry them. You can put some hot sauce on them. There's just lots of options. Yeah, I was thinking this whole time of like every time you said chitin, I was thinking food. And I just assume they're crispy, but they probably aren't. No, no, they don't look too crispy. This species that we're talking about, which is the butterfly chitin, Mm. is Kind of exemplary because like other chitin species, the girdle has developed quite a bit. So you can't really see the shell. Oh. So the girdle has kind of grown up over around the shell. And there's these kind of like spiny moments that stick out. It almost looks like a circus tent. Okay. (laughs) And it's orange. Whoa. This particular species is native to New Zealand and present in Madagascar as well. They're common grazers. They like an exposed rock washed by waves and they'll go down to about 30 meters and typically are associated with sponges. And I encourage you, Meredith, as a sort of line of inquiry to explore fun chitin species. In fact, you could just Google fun chitin species and you'd find a variety of them. It's C-H-I-T-O-N. Okay. 
I mean, they come in a variety of shapes and colors and sizes, and the girdles develop kind of in crazy ways as camouflage and all this kind of stuff. So there's one that's like a mossy chitin and then all these other sort of wide varieties. See, again, they do seem really fashionable to me. They're pretty fashionable. The largest is the gumboot chitin. Okay. The gumboot chitin can get really big. It can be 14 inches long and weigh as much as two kilograms, which is like four and a half pounds. Wow. The chitin I'm talking about, the butterfly chitin, only gets to be about two or three inches in length. So little guys. Yeah, cute little guys. But that's really more or less my chitin journey. I love that. And you know, I think dealing with mollusks as much as you have has made, say, this report a lot easier to understand given all the groundwork you've laid up to this point. Thanks. Yeah, I feel pretty good about it. I feel like I'm starting to better understand mollusks and... I'm getting to the point where I can kind of look at these drawings of mollusk anatomy and be like, oh, yeah, there's the mouth. There's the stomach. There's its like little kind of demi-intestine moment. We have a heart. We have the kidneys, you know, the so-called air quote kidneys. Right. Like it's it is just another example of just the more you do something, the easier it is to pick up and also just kind of encounter these terms and be like, oh, well, yeah, that makes sense or you will not slay me i will slowly understand what you mean right exactly it's so cool i love that yeah thanks i don't know do you have any questions i don't think so i just looked them up and it was actually kind of what i was picturing but there were a lot of different crazy colors and sizes and looks yeah i have to say that i first encountered the chitons because a friend of mine, Jeremy, he posted an Instagram story. He was in like Bermuda or something on a gig. Uh And he just went down to the beach and he posted a photo. He's like, what's up with you, little friend? And it kind of looked curious. And I didn't really know what the animal was right away. So I just started typing in like Bermuda arthropods or whatever, (laughs) because I thought maybe it was an arthropod. But it brings up like the arthropod society a Bermuda website from like 1998. Starts with a chitin disambiguity page. Yeah, yeah. Chitons are not arthropods. I discovered it that way, or I guess I was it was thrust into my consciousness that way. And so then when yeah. I began my mollusk journey, I was like, oh, these polyplacophora, you know. Hey, girls. Those are the chitons. I'll get to them when I get to them. And I just wanted to conquer the tusk shells first and everything. It's a big step. Yeah. Got to pay those dues. Yeah. Like all of that have come before you. For sure. Well, groovy. Groovy indeed. We're going real tight today. Let's, I guess, let's take a break. All right, let's do it. Yo, dig hat, Knox. Thanks, Phoenix. Rainy day, huh? Sure is. The best part of rainy days is that we all get to catch up with our fellow earthworm pals. You've never been a liar, Knox, and today you continue your tradition of truth-telling. You said it. Now tell me more about your hat. It's so fashionable and appears to be keeping you dry as well. Well, it's the new brand clubby apparel line, Annalids. Fashion-forward headwear for segmented worms. Annalids? Yep, Annalids, with a Z. Just like Annalid, our phylum. Brand Clubby's creativity knows no bounds. Hey, hey, let's not be too hasty. What I can say is that the nanofiber technology employed by Brand Clubby creates a hydro protection zone 
keeping your wormy mouth from getting splashed full of the water from above. It sounds like annelids could help me solve one of the highest stress problems I have in my otherwise carefree life. I know. That's why I'm telling everyone. Spread the word. I bet Indigo and Sawyer are just over there. I'll go tell them now before the earth dries and we all go back underground. Use code NOX15 at checkout to save 15% on your first annelids purchase. Mm. What smelleth I? Allergy season. Oh. It, smells, it smells like allergy season. Oh, I'm sorry, Mike. Well, I'll tell you what smelleth I. Definitely some oats. Oh, how exciting. Yes. That means we're in the feedback. We've made it back. Sylvester from Watts asks, which animal is the most real? Whoa. Oh, that really caught me off guard. Good question, Sylvester. Ooh. Are we asking really which animal is the most real or which animal makes us feel the most real? Ala Sylvester. <laughs> you make me feel my hearty real. Yeah. Well, which animal makes you feel mighty real, Meredith? I love that song and I love this question. Which animal makes me feel mighty real? Wow. I'm going to take this, I guess, in a certain direction. What animal do I find sexy gives me reason to be? Okay. That's realness to you. Yeah. That's realness to me. I will say I saw a picture of John the lion at the Cincinnati Zoo, and he is quite the main. And I was like, that's a sexy lion. So... Right now, I'm feeling John the Lion from the Cincinnati Zoo makes me, Meredith, feel mighty real. Wow. Okay. Well, uh, <laughs> that's nice. What about you, Mike? I guess that I'm not having the same response of, like, sexiness that you are. Yeah. So, in terms of my realness, it's, I guess, more like a ferocity sort of situation. Okay. And in that sense, I feel like the flamingo makes me feel the most real. Oh, gosh, yes. They kind of move in packs. They kind of do that, like, frug thing where they do, like, <laughs> walk across the pond, and then they just are, like, turning around looking fierce. And Yeah, they, like, move their heads as they walk. It's so funny. It's so funny. And then their white plumage was, like, not enough for them, so they eat a lot of shrimp, and their feathers are pink because of it, and that fills my heart with joy. Yeah, this has been a very fashion-forward creature episode today, so I'm really glad you really buttoned it with the most fab of the creatures, the flamingo. Okay, so our fish position for Meredith, it's John the Lion at the Cincinnati Zoo. Yes. And for me, it's all flamingos everywhere. I love it. Ding, ding, ding. Ding, 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 ding. There ever was one. The next one, this is just a comment from George from Moscow, and he just says... Greetings from Russia. Thanks for covering my favorite animal, the Desmond. Oh, what a nice note. You know, George, I will say I've been, you know, pretty obsessed with the Desmond since I learned more about them last week. There's probably like three windows on my phone open right now with just Desmond pictures. I'm not even kidding. I believe it. I was just looking at them last night. They're so fun. I've really been smitten by them. Yeah, they seem to just kind of constantly be having a good time. I know, in those pictures, they're always, like, mid-laugh, and they just look so rotund and jolly. I, I'm really, really into the Desmonds as well, George. I'm glad we share some love for the Desmond. 
Yeah. All right. Well, that's a nice comment. Yeah. Our fish position on that comment is, thanks for the nice comment. <laughs> ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. Annie from Minneapolis asks, if you could have any non-human appendage for a day, what would you choose and why? For me, the obvious thing would be like wings so I could fly around. But even wings, would that allow me to fly? Because I'm not like built like a bird, you know? In which case, I kind of just for the sonic sonic experience, I kind of want hooves so I can clip-clop. Ooh, okay. I kind of feel like a detachable tail, like a skinky day moment. Really? Fun. Yeah, I think that's what's right for me. I love it. Would you like have to have a pal like grab it for you so you could detach it? I think it would mostly be my enemies that would be grabbing it and then I would detach it. I think my pals would grab it and it would stay attached because I'd be like You can can hold that. Yeah, I can hold that. I'm not threatened by a pal grabbing my tail. Cool. Okay. You have a lot of enemies coming after your tail, Mike? Uh, I mean, not currently, but you know, it's a weird time for us right now, Meredith. Fair enough. I think that, you know, I'm kind of planning for like a post-quarantine situation. You know, I'm playing the long game here. Got it. Okay. I respect that. So, a fish position. Mike's going to have a detachable tail, skink-like, and I'm going to clip-clop around my apartment. Whose hoops? Those are Meredith's hoops. <laughs> I know. I want to come into the room and they'd be like, oh, whose hooves? Meredith's hooves, just like you said. Love it. Ding, 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 ding. Ding, ding, ding. All right. Keep those questions coming, everybody. Animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. And uh, have a great week in animals. Amen. Animal Fan Club is created and produced by us, Meredith Jurgens and Mike Luno. We also create all our original music and sonic experiences. Send us your listener feedback questions to animalfanclubpod at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at animalfanclubpod, at Meredith Jurgens and at Mike underscore Luno. And don't forget to rate and review our podcast on your favorite app. That really helps us out. Thanks for listening to our show. We hope it makes your heart and spirit glow. We'll be here next week for another meeting of the Animal Fan Club.